world needs to hear this. Showing how these reptilian bloodlines in this Chittahuli, this reptilian group, expanded their power across the world. This is what this nonsense is all about. There are lies. There are big lies. They are... There are enormous lies. There are gigantic whoppers. You're dealing with people you cannot rationally have a conversation with. Welcome to Ikeland, the podcast where I, Thomas Robertson, he, him, take you on a journey through the world of British conspiracy theorist David Ike, a self-confessed tireless campaigner for truth. Oofty doofty, we're continuing our harrowing journey into Ike's latest book today, The Trap. Before we begin, I want to mention I've started a Patreon for Ikeland. I know, I know, begging for money, cap in hand already. But by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Ikeland, Ikeland is one word, you will support the show and keep me soldiering on in the fight against disinformation on the internet. I'll be honest, making the show takes a fair bit of time and risks my sanity. <laughs> so any contribution is appreciated. Uh, in return, I will definitely shower you with praise on the show, and uh, I am cooking up some other goodies to give supporters. Uh, definitely open to suggestions if you have any about what you'd like to receive in return. Um, yeah, uh, I've set the price quite low. I think it's $3.50 Australian off the top of my head. So in Australia, you know, depending on where you are in the world, that could be a lot. But here in Australia, it's less than a cup of coffee a month. Um, you know, again, no pressure. Uh, any support is appreciated, even if you just want to, you know, share the podcast around and tell your friends, that'd be great too. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Gotta feed that bird you can hear in the background. Alright, on with the show. When we last left Mr. Ike, his football career had come to an end prematurely at 21 years of age. Quite young for a professional footballer to have to give up the game. Ike had received a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis at 19, but despite this, he played through the pain this caused him for two years. But at 21 years old, he'd now reached his body's limit. Last time I skipped over what Ike had to say about the early treatment of his arthritis because, to be honest, I wanted to get through Ike's early life as quickly as possible. But it is worth talking about for a few minutes now before we move on. With his health and his career on the line, Ike sought something to cure his arthritis. He writes, I was looking for anything to ease the pain and swelling, and with mainstream medicine giving up on me, I had to search elsewhere. I had been given a big jar of pills called Indocin after the end your career verdict at Coventry and warned that I could be in a wheelchair in my 30s, given the young age at which the arthritis began. I had one reply to that, no way is that going to happen. I also asked if the Indocin would cure the arthritis. No, I was told, it would just ease the pain. Right, you can stick that then, I thought. Even at this early age, I was extremely skeptical about drug companies and their products, thanks to my father. This was just as well. I later read that Indocin and the same non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs under other trade names are rather less than good for your health. Ike presents the following warning as a quote, but provides no sources for the quote. Uh, it reads, 
Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDSs, cause an increased risk of serious cardiovascular thrombotic events, including myocardial infarction and stroke, which can be fatal. This risk may occur early in treatment and may increase with duration of use. NSAIDSs cause an increased risk of serious gastrointestinal adverse events, including bleeding, ulceration, and perforation of the stomach or intestines, which can be fatal. These events can occur at any time during use and without warning symptoms. I was prescribed these at 19 and told nothing about those potential effects, or a list of other adverse consequences, which is so long it's shocking. If I had taken them, I would have been dead long ago. Actually murdered by Big Pharma and the doctor who advised me to take them without regard to the effects or even warning me about them. Hilariously, I discovered the source of that warning Ike quotes is actually from the advisory statement required by law to be included on NSAIDS's packaging. So the medical establishment isn't really trying to sneak this one past us. Um, it's, it's literally right there on the box. Uh, more top research from Ike. So, Indocin is a trade name for Indomethacin. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. As Ike states, Indomethacin is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug and is frequently used to relieve pain and swelling related to arthritis. Although Indomethacin has side effects and there are risks associated with its use, Ike is presenting these risks out of context. I hope the shock isn't too much for you. I found an article published in the British Journal of General Practice from April 2016 entitled The Dangers of NSAIDSs. Look both ways. The article discusses the dangers associated with the use of NSAIDSs like endomethacin and the patients most at risk of adverse drug reactions. I'll be honest, okay, it has some pretty grim statistics. To quote the article, Preventable adverse drug reactions are responsible for 10% of hospital admissions in older people at a cost of around £800 million annually. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are responsible for 30% of hospital admissions for ADRs, or adverse drug reactions, mainly due to bleeding, heart attack, stroke, and renal damage. The article further states, Despite the well-advertised harms of NSAIDSs, underpinned by medicines and the Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency warnings and contraindications for diclofenac and uh, COX2 use in CVD, that's uh, cardiovascular disease, deaths from NSAIDSs remain very high. More deaths than from road traffic accidents and twice as many deaths as from asthma or cervical cancer. Now, I'm not a doctor or a uh, pharmacist, so forgive me if I'm mispronouncing or uh, just comically um, goofing on the pronunciation of some of those things there, but you get the you get the idea at least, right? Now, as grim as that sounds, you'll note that these hospital admission statistics are for older people taking NSAIDSs. Patients over 65 taking NSAIDSs are more likely to have an adverse drug reaction because they're much more likely to be taking other medication which shouldn't be mixed with the NSAIDSs. They are the only cohort designated high risk though. To quote the article again, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE, what a fantastic name, defines high risk patients as aged over 65, interacting medications, including 20% of patients aged over 75 years, uh, patients with diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, 
renal or liver impairment, patients with a history of peptic ulcer or gastrointestinal bleeding, and those that take long-term NSAIDSs or maximum doses. Now, I certainly don't want to downplay the risks of taking NSAIDSs because uh, it's obvious that there is a substantial risk to you if you have a pre-existing condition and or you're taking other medication. Also, and importantly, I am not a doctor, just a man with Google and too much passion. But when I think about the people having serious adverse reactions to these drugs, the over 65s, people with diabetes, people with high blood pressure, people with cardiovascular disease, people with renal impairment, people with liver impairments, people with gastrointestinal bleeding. And then I think of prime of his life professional athlete David Icke. I can't help but think that Ike's probably exaggerating his risk. I definitely think Ike's prognostications about his premature death are dire and melodramatic. Ike writes like the doctor told him to go home and start mixing and drinking whatever he could find under the kitchen sink. Since Ike refused conventional treatment, he had no choice but the unconventional. And this is where Ike has his first brush with the world of woo. At the suggestion of his wife Linda, who I guess we can really blame for everything, Ike sought treatment from Professor J.R. Worsley, a practitioner of traditional five-element acupuncture. Now, acupuncture does have legitimate therapeutic value, and, uh, you know, God knows I've had it myself for uh, tennis elbow and things like that uh, from a physiotherapist dozens of times uh, from, you know, cures my own aches and pains, but even a quick look into Professor Worsley's methods show us we're deep in alternative medicine territory. Naturally, Ike swears by it, writing of Worsley's methods. He and others at his practice basically kept me playing football in the Hereford years against all the odds. I remember hurting my wrist in training one Thursday morning, two days before a game, and I was told I would never be fit in time to play. I left training and drove the 70 miles to Kenilworth for some needles in the wrist, and I trained the next morning with the wrist no problem. I've always been open to other ways of doing things, and suspicious of authority in all its forms. I became very interested in acupuncture, which clearly helped me when mainstream medicine could not. Now, here's a curious inconsistency I found which is evidence, really, of just how unreliable Ike is, even with facts about his own life. Of his first meeting with Professor Worsley, Mike writes, I went to see him, and it turned out he had read about my arthritis story in the local paper. Yet, a few pages earlier, Ike had written of his efforts to conceal his arthritis to avoid being replaced as a goalkeeper. As the season progressed, the cold mornings came, and my arthritis returned with a vengeance. I couldn't tell the club, or they would have looked for a new goalkeeper. And I was playing so well, it wasn't obvious there was a problem except every morning at Carden Hill during the warm-up. Uh, Creedon Hill, my mistake. My joints would be stiff and agony until they were warm. Every day I awoke with the knowledge that I would soon face at least half an hour of sometimes excruciating pain. I made every excuse for the limps. Oh, I've got a bit of a pull. Or, I think I've got a blister coming. It was always the same cause. The arthritis in my knees. Both by now. And my ankles. There's always something wrong with you, Ikey, other players would say. And I would laugh while thinking, if only you knew. Yes, if only they knew indeed. There can't have been an article in the paper about Ike's arthritis while he was still playing football for Professor Worsley to have read, because Ike was trying to hide his arthritis. So, Ike is lying, either about Worsley's treatment of his wrist, which got him back into training, or about Worsley commenting about the article, 
or about hiding his arthritis from the team. Now, all of these lies are trivial, so why bother? Uh, look, I don't have an answer, but I think it underlines that Ike is fundamentally unreliable, even concerning details about his own biography. What he does have to say about himself, we have to take with a grain of salt, just as much, if not more so, than we do with his claims about, you know, reptilian overlords or far-reaching international conspiracies. Football was over. So what next? I'm glad you asked. Like many a retiring athlete before and since, Ike heard the siren call of journalism. He writes, The local Hereford paper ran a front-page lead story about the end of my career, and I was asked to be interviewed live on the television show ATV Today in Birmingham, which covered the Hereford area. The interviewer was a well-known sports presenter, Gary Newbin, and he was talking to me with my career just ended, and to cricketer Mike Hendrick, who was starting a career as an England bowler. The interview was a segment in the early evening news magazine show, and the three of us tiptoed into the studio as the news was being read. Newbin was pacing up and down, and I looked around at the presenters, cameras, and lights, and felt the tension in the atmosphere. I remember thinking, Ikey, this is for you, son. I did the interview and asked Newbin afterwards how I could get into television. He said it normally happened through newspapers and radio. As we drove home, I told Linda that I was going to work in television, and I set my ambitions to present a BBC sports program called Grandstand, which spanned the whole of Saturday afternoon and later Sunday too. The two main hosts were Frank Bowe and David Coleman, and I'd first watched Coleman present the show as a kid in the late 1950s. It seemed to most people to be a ridiculous goal. I'd set out as a 10-year-old to be a professional goalkeeper, which at that time was confined to just 92 people in professional first teams each Saturday. Now I wanted to present a TV show that only a handful of people ever did in its entire run between 1958 and 2007. With that, Ike decided that his destiny lay in TV, specifically hosting Grandstand on the BBC. I suppose being a TV presenter isn't too dissimilar from being a professional athlete. Both are high-pressure positions in the public eye, after all. I'd be interested to hear Ike expand on what it was about TV that captured his interest. Maybe it's as simple as Ike being drawn to positions where he's the subject of a lot of attention. I don't know, but athlete, TV presenter, controversial conspiracy theorist, Ike is apparently drawn to careers which keep him in the public eye. If you did want to draw attention to yourself, claiming to possess special knowledge that no one else possesses about life's big questions is a strategy which has proven successful, as many a cult leader or guru have proven over and over. Ike's motivations are elusive, and we can only speculate about his reasons for pursuing a career in TV. He only offers one other tidbit about his attraction to journalism, and it isn't any more enlightening. He writes, I had always had journalism in my mind as a second string, as I devoured news and sports papers from quite an early age, especially the coverage of Leicester City Games by a writer on the local Leicester Mercury, Laurie Simpkin. In fact, reading that back now, I think that sounds... Uh, it, it speaks more to his interest in football than his interest in journalism, but, uh, you know, nevertheless. Now, recall, if you will, Ike's educational background at this point. Again, not to belittle early school leavers, but journalists are typically university graduates, and Ike left school at 15 to be a professional footballer. Thankfully, uh, for Ike's budding journalistic ambitions... 
Sometimes it's who you know and not what you know that counts. He writes, Enter once again at just the right time Coventry City Director John Campkin, who called to ask me what I plan to do now. I told him I wanted to be a journalist with a view to getting into television, and he said he would talk to a few people he knew from his own time in newspapers and TV. John Campkin came back to me with an offer from an old friend of his on the uh, London Daily Mail, who was head of a journalism college in Harlow, Essex, to which newspapers in the Midlands and the south of England sent their young journalists to be trained. His name was Bill Hicks, namesake of the brilliant and spiritually profound American comedian, and he said that if I came down and passed the entrance exam for acceptance into his college, he would recommend me to all the newspapers he worked with. I did pass, and he kept his word. Only two papers responded, the Kent Messenger and, more synchronicity, the Leicester Advertiser, which was part of the Leicester Mercury Group. The lack of interest was twofold. All footballers in those days were considered to be thick, see, journalists today, and I had no educational qualifications whatsoever after leaving school at 15 to play football. Note here that, despite passing the entrance exam to attend the journalism college mentioned, Ike didn't in fact attend the college and has no formal training in journalism. Despite this, he feels confident enough to tell us that journalism school is of little benefit, as well as tell us what counts for good journalism and offer his opinion on why journalism today sucks. He writes, The nearest I came to university was playing for Oxford United, and would-be journalists were invariably expected to be university graduates, as if that somehow ensured basic intelligence. It doesn't. It means you have a good enough memory to take what you have been told and repeat that on an exam paper. Innate intelligence, which can't be taught, is something very different, and today's excuse for journalism is almost entirely devoid of that in the mainstream. The industry demands compliant clones, not innately intelligent people who have pursued the truth for the truth's sake. The basics of journalism, as with writing in general, are not difficult. Writing books, for example, is simply having a conversation via the written word with the reader, and proper journalism is telling people what they need to know and asking the questions the public would like to ask, but can't. These questions include, what happened? Why? How? When? And who was involved? Today's fake journalism might sometimes tell you what happened, if you are really lucky and there is not the usual spin. What it does not tell you is why it happened in terms of the real context and implications. Nor will it tell you most of the time, especially with crucial subjects and societal changes, who is really responsible for what is happening behind the scenes. To our fake journalists, there is no behind the scenes or manipulation from the shadows. That is always a conspiracy theory, no matter what the scale of evidence to support it. Journalism today is a propaganda machine, a mass perceptual manipulation operation, and nothing more. The COVID era has proved, has proved this beyond a doubt. More than that, this journalistic fakery seems to demonize and dismiss those in the alternative and independent media who do still work to uncover the truth. How the fakes sleep at night is beyond me, although given their lack of integrity and self-awareness, I suspect, like a baby, would be the answer. You may expect, as I did, that Ike may begin to defend himself at this point and his past as a journalist. After all, aren't journalists merely the propagandists of the cult, agents of disinformation, feeding us the cult-approved lies to keep us compliant? Surely Ike realises his past involvement with the major cult propaganda outlets like the BBC would tarnish his reputation as a truth-teller. If you care to look, don't, but if you cared to, you can find comments online accusing Ike of being 
controlled opposition, that is to say, owned by the conspiracy and part of their propaganda machine. Curiously, Eich offers no commentary about the claims he's compromised, nor does he offer a defense of having worked with the untrustworthy mainstream media before he knew any better. Ike doesn't uncover anything during his time as a journalist that radicalizes him into the truth seeker we recognize him as today. Ike doesn't even have any insider information to offer us, just a few anecdotes about personnel he found disagreeable to work with. Don't get me wrong, he bashes journalism as an industry, but we never get anything really juicy. Ike never claims to have seen a copy of the cult's propagandist operational handbook in the top drawer of the BBC controller's desk or a list of the subliminal imagery the cult ordered be inserted into episodes of Doctor Who. Ike has been on the inside and seen how a major media organisation like the BBC operates. The fact that Ike has seen how the sausage is made makes his claims that mainstream journalism is unreliable and fundamentally untrustworthy all the more perplexing. I would think that were there anything to substantiate his claims, this would be where he brings out the evidence. Stories from when he saw the hand of the cult intervene to change a news item, or invent one entirely to deceive or manipulate the public. The fact is that Ike doesn't have any more evidence to support his claims about the media than he does for reptilian bloodlines. If anything, his disdain for journalists is probably driven by two factors. One, the ridicule he received in the early 90s from the industry, and two, that any half-decent mainstream news outlet offers constant refutation of everything he claims to be true about the world. Despite Ike's current misgivings about the field, in 1983 Ike was determined to break into journalism. His first job with the Leicester Advertiser may not have been a glamorous start, but it was a start nonetheless. The Leicester Advertiser offered me the job on the basis that no one else wanted it. The paper covered every, every, every area of Leicester where hardly anyone lived. All the urban areas had their own paper, and the Advertiser covered everywhere else. There were more sheep on my patch than people. I would go to village stores, post offices, and the local vicar to find news to report. Oh, you've got a bring and buy sale? There's a concert at the village hall? Quick, hold the front page! We had a three-day working week in Britain soon after I started to preserve coal stocks in response to a miners' strike. I attended a village parish council meeting in which the main hall was closed, and everyone sat around a gas fire in the tiny kitchen discussing village happenings. A few months earlier I had run into my goal at Hereford United with the crowd chanting my name, and now I was sitting in a village hall kitchen listening to discussions about street lamps. Ike played to his strengths and used his football background to his advantage to break out of print and into radio. I began to do radio reports of Leicester City matches on Saturdays for a local news agency owned by a real character, Roland Orton. Pretty soon he offered me a job at his office on the same floor as BBC Radio Leicester. My close proximity and football background led me to becoming their Leicester City match reporter. My first work, albeit minor, with the BBC. It wasn't long before Ike was working full-time in radio for BRMB Birmingham. Ike spent two years there altogether, learning and honing his broadcasting skills. During this time, Ike briefly took a job with one of his former football managers at Coventry City, before returning to broadcasting. Ike spent eight weeks of a two-year contract in Saudi Arabia working with Saudi footballers. Ike doesn't offer a lot of details, only that they were hired in Saudi Arabia to improve football there. 
Ike returned home into broadcasting after finding both Saudi Arabia and being away from his young family not to his liking. Which, you know, fair enough. A year later, Ike took a job as a regional journalist at the BBC on a show called Midlands Today. He was inching closer to his dream of presenting Grandstand, and with one foot in the door, he used his new BBC press pass to attend a broadcast of Grandstand go out from London. One thing I can't accuse Ike of is being lazy. Of his time at Midlands Today, he writes, The term regional journalist was defined in the job description as writing news scripts with occasional appearances and vision. I thought, sod that, I was not going to be that close to my goal of television and sit in the background. I quickly worked out how to maximise his opportunities to appear on television. I noticed that when the designated reporters had been sent out on diary jobs in the morning, events we knew which were happening, any news story that broke would have to be covered by one of the group of regional journalists. I also noticed that these stories would often come to our attention during the lunch break, and I began taking sandwiches and sitting in the newsroom on my own while everyone else headed for the BBC bar. Day after day, the producer would put his head around the door to find me alone in the newsroom. David, grab a crew. There's a story to cover. Very soon, occasional appearances in Vision became on the program every night, and I was redesignated to be a full-time reporter. Ike stayed with Midlands Today for two years before the BBC offered him a gig presenting sport for Newsnight. Based in London, Newsnight went out nationally. Ike would be in the national spotlight for the first time. Unfortunately, not the last time. With Newsstand under his belt, Ike was finally able to achieve the dream, first of appearing on Grandstand, and then hosting it. Within a few months of moving from regional television to Newsnight, where national TV producers could see me, I had a call in the Newsnight office. Hello, David. This is Martin Hopkins at Grandstand. My mouth went dry. Grandstand! At the end of the show, as the football results came in at 5.45 and the audience was at its peak, there was a spot when a presenter named Tony Gubber would round out all the games not covered by reporters from the grounds and go through the new league positions as they were after the day's results. Martin Hopkins, a long-time Grandstand stalwart, said Gubber would be away for two weeks soon, and would I be interested in filling in? It took me 0.1 of a second to say yes. What started as a temporary fill-in soon became a permanent gig for Ike on Grandstand. Ike's star continued to rise. My full-time arrival at BBC Sport coincided with the 1982 Commonwealth Games in Brisbane, when virtually every presenter and reporter headed for Australia. Hey, that's where I live and the few of us left behind had to host all the UK-based shows. Suddenly, almost in an instant, I was all over national TV as part of the early morning Commonwealth Games programs. Then, grabbed a few hours sleep before presenting the primetime Horse of the Year show from Wembley Arena in the evening while knowing absolutely nothing about horses. In 1982, Ike was only 30, and already on television all across Britain. But having achieved his dream, Ike was now at a bit of a loss professionally. He writes, With my ambition secured, I lost interest in television. The fire in my belly that drove me forward towards Grand Strand dramatically waned, and while I still did my best, my heart was no longer in it. Television is a very vacuous world of backstabbing, inward-looking myopia, and the BBC Sports Department was run by many people who would have be a therapist's life's work. I was never a mixer away from the studio setting, and that became ever more pronounced as my heart retreated from the TV world. 
I would prepare my scripts at home on the Isle of Wight where I moved in 1982, travel to London as late as I could to do a show, and have a taxi with the engine running outside Television Centre timed for the closing titles. I was on the train home at London's Waterloo Railway Station before the rest of the crew were in the BBC bar. Mike Murphy, the grandstand editor who gave me those shows and promised many more, left the BBC and he was replaced by one of those people for whom a therapist would need no other clients. Grandstand and me were parting company, and in the greatest scheme of my life it was, with hindsight, exactly what needed to happen. Ike had succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. He'd been a professional footballer by 15 years of age, and a major television personality by 30. Content, and with no more worlds to conquer, Ike retired to his home in the Isle of Wight to raise his family away from the public eye. Ike has taken up beekeeping and makes occasional public appearances at children's hospitals, signing football memorabilia for sick kids. None of the kids know who he is, but they appreciate the visit nonetheless. No, I'm just kidding. Can you, can you imagine? No, no. Ike went into politics and eventually batshit crazy. He writes, As my interest in television faded from the mid-1980s, my mind turned to other things, and primarily what human economic activity was doing to what I then perceived as the natural world. Much more later. I don't mean the global warming hoax, see, COVID hoax sprung by the same people, which was starting to emerge. This was far from the dominating factor in the so-called green movement as it has become today. Greens then cared about all aspects of environmental assault, and that would have included the extraordinary impact of mass mask wearing, which Greens in general have encouraged, even demanded, no matter what the environmental consequence. My concerns involved the way beautiful landscapes were being destroyed by inappropriate building and how the environment was being deluged by pollution at all levels. Air, food, water, the lot. My interest began in the Isle of Wight when I saw landscapes in unique urban and village areas destroyed by buildings that a child could have designed and in no way sympathetic to what was already there. It wasn't a case of stop all development. It was rather what kind of development and where. I came to realise that those decisions were being made by a network of Freemasons and Satanists on the island, collectively referred to as the Island Mafia, which controlled the local councils, a single council today, and in particular, the planning department that had the major say in what was built or not. In other words, who could make fantastic profits from developments that the council sanctioned? When you can vastly increase the value of land by giving planning permission for development, corruption will always be rife. The Isle of Wight was, is, awash with it. The island is still wildly beautiful despite the best efforts of the Mafia, but it has a very dark and satanic underbelly, which understandably has contempt for me. I take that as an honour and a compliment. I helped to create Island Watch, an organisation pledged to campaign against inappropriate development and the corruption involved. It was now that I began to appreciate the influence of Freemasons and other secret societies as I realised the decisions the Council apparently made in public in the evening were actually being decided at the Freemasons' lodge in the afternoon. Public debate was therefore a farce. Apparently successful at absolutely everything he tries, including ruining his own life, it would only take weeks before Ike was a major player in the Green Party. He writes, I wrote to the head office to ask if they had a contact on the Isle of Wight, and they replied that there was no Green Party on the island, which I knew, 
and not even a contact. This would be 1988. The reply encouraged me to start an island branch, and I organised a few public meetings, and away we went. What happened next was utterly ridiculous and made me wonder for the first time about a force guiding my life. A couple of weeks after starting the Isle of Wight branch, we had a letter from the regional party inviting us to send a delegate to its quarterly meeting of all the local parties in the south of central England at Winchester in Hampshire. I went along, and after hours of meaningless naval contemplating, the chair lady said that the regional party's representative on National Party Council was stepping down that day, and they needed a nomination for a replacement. No one volunteered, and so I did on the basis of someone's got to do it. I had been a member of the Green Party for a matter of weeks, and now I was on the National Party Council. What? There was a meeting of the council in a couple of weeks, and I had arrived at a building near Regent's Park in London, where there were more naval contemplating at a higher level. Just before the lunch break, the main chairing said they needed to elect speakers to represent the party in the media for the coming year, and he would take nominations when the meeting resumed. During lunch, a man came over and said, You're on the television, aren't you? Yes, I replied. So you would be confident in the media then? He continued. Yeah, I, I guess so. If you put your name forward as a speaker, I will second you, came the punchline. Okay, why not? I'm up for anything. A short time later, I was elected a national speaker for the Green Party. Again, just a matter of weeks after I joined. It was crazy. It sure is, David. It sure is crazy. Unfortunately for Ike, his bosses at the BBC did not take kindly to his new zest for politics. Ike writes, I was in the national media talking about politics, and this didn't go down well with the BBC sport people and the BBC hierarchy in general. Apparently there was a conflict between presenting sport and saying the economic system was destroying the environment. I can understand if I was reporting news, but I hadn't done that since I joined Newsnight in 1980. Despite Ike's obliviousness or reluctance to acknowledge it, the sports presenter being a national spokesperson for a political party is likely to raise questions about the BBC's impartiality. Even the perception of bias towards one political party over another would be unacceptable. Ike is entitled to his political opinions, you know, as anyone is. But Ike presenting for the BBC could be seen as implicit endorsement of his political opinions, or the Green Party. I can't imagine that this wasn't raised with him by his boss at some point or other. I also think a news organisation having concerns about one of their presenters being the subject of the news is totally justified. This was the beginning of the end for Ike's media career. The BBC were slowly untangling themselves from Ike. The final nail in the coffin would be an act of civil disobedience when Ike became too controversial for the BBC to renew his contract. The crunch came when I refused to pay the poll tax or Community Charge, introduced by Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in 1989, and another remarkable series of synchronistic events followed. The tax in effect had people on small and large incomes paying the same, which was obviously unfair, and large number of people refused to pay in protest. The first court cases for non-payers could have been held anywhere in Britain, and yet it happened in the small town of Newport, on the Isle of Wight, where my case was to be heard the hearings attracted national and wider world attention. I arrived on the bus from Ride with Linda to find an extraordinary number of photographers surrounding me and moving in unison like a single entity. There were so many appearing in court that day that they were processing six to eight at a time instead of one. It came to my turn, 
and in the line with me was a young chap I had seen at a number of protest meetings. He was very forensic in studying the rules and regulations. As the magistrates were going through what they believed was another group to rubber stamp, he put his hand up and asked to speak. He asked the magistrates when the prosecution summonses to court were sent out to people, and how that compared with the time between non-payment and a summons being issued as dictated by the law. The magistrates consulted with the court clerk. The atmosphere around them, and their demeanour, visibly changed. They announced an adjournment. When they returned, they said that all the summonses to the court that day had been sent out too early, and therefore all the prosecutions delivered were invalid. Everyone was free to go. I put up my hand and pointed out that those summoned to court that day had lost a day's pay, plus their travel costs, and they needed to be reimbursed. The magistrates agreed, and I would eventually receive my <laughs> £2.50 bus fare. Margaret Thatcher's poll tax never recovered from that humiliation. At the first legal hurdle, nor did she. The tax would be replaced, and so would Thatcher the following year when her own party conspired to remove her. The next day I had a meeting scheduled at Television Centre in London with the head of sport Jonathan Martin. He was a system man claiming to have socialist tendencies, and I never really trusted him as I did Cliff Morgan. In fact, by then, Cliff was the only one I did trust at the BBC in London. I walked into Martin's office at and the morning papers were all over his table with my picture on the front of most of them after the poll tax debacle in Newport the day before. What I happen to say has nothing to do with those, he said, confirming that it was, at least in part. He said the BBC was not renewing my contract, which had only a few weeks to run. He and they didn't even have the decency to give me a longer warning so I could have time to make arrangements for another income. I'd already lost the weekend job on BBC News in a bizarre conversation with the then head of news, Tony Hall, later BBC Director General, as the, by then, Baron Hall of Birkenhead. The fancy titles are just so pathetic. Hall rang to tell me that I could no longer work on the Saturday news program given my political activities. The problem was, he couldn't quite blurt out the words. He went round and round the houses. I saved him from his stuttering by saying, I thought it would be best if I stood down. Oh, do you? Really? He said, the relief in his voice almost hilariously obvious. Ike's concern about income aside, Ike's reaction to losing what must have been a very lucrative salary and a position he had worked hard to achieve is surprising. He writes, So that was it then, the end of my television career. Was I gutted? Nope. I had concerns about how to earn a living, but it wasn't only Baron Hall that was relieved. Relief surged through my body. I was free of the nonsense I had come to loathe, and by then, another life was revealing itself in the most extraordinary way. In the words of Guns N' Roses, Where do we go? Where do we go now? Where do we go? Oh, oh, where do we go? Where do we go now? Oh, where do we go now? Where do we go, sweet child? Where do we go now? I, 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 where do we go now? Ah. Anyway, we're now 100-some pages into the trap, and we haven't even had a hint yet about reincarnation or the true nature of our reality. The next chapter, chapter 3, finally gets us moving, and is where the bloody book should have started. An editor, an editor, Ike's kingdom for an editor. No use crying over spilled ink now. Despite recovering 
old ground that Ike has written about in previous books, Ike has added and omitted some telling details in this most recent retelling of his origin story. If you'd like to contact me, including with corrections which are encouraged, you can email me at ikelandpodcast, or one word, at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, remember, you're potentially only ever weeks away from becoming the spokesperson for a political party. Apparently. Now we go to Bournemouth for the final frames of the team event as England take on the rest of the world in international snooker. Here's David Icke. Yes, thank you, and welcome to Bournemouth for the last time in the 1989 Vecina Windows World Cup. And in this program, as you've heard, we'll see the final decided between England and the rest of the world. Good final it is too. This was the situation when we left it an hour ago on BBC Two. England led 6-5 in the best of 17. Jimmy White and Tony Drago had shared their frames. Then we saw Steve Davis won the first of his two against Dino Kane. And I can tell you he won the next one as well with a break of 68. So 7-5 to England now as uh, Neil Folds and Silvino Francisco come out into the arena for their two frames. Well, Savino has been in good form in this final. He took three frames off Jimmy White earlier on this afternoon, but he's behind in this next frame, which has already been going for 25 minutes. Neil Foles there leading 58-41. Commentators John Spencer and Jack Carnham. 